Well, good morning. Is this on? Okay, good. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Tobias. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Christ the King. And this morning, uh, we have the opportunity of finishing up our sermon series on the book of Ruth. And so we're going to be focusing on that last chapter, chapter 4. And, and so we're, we're going to go ahead and begin this morning by reading that chapter. I invite you to open your copy of God's Word if you have one. I think it also, it's in the bulletin, it might be projected as well. Uh, let's begin with reading chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Machlon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. 
and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we uh, stand in awe of your work in redemptive history, your faithfulness to your people, your faithfulness to your promise to redeem a people, to call us to yourself by your grace. Lord, we are thankful for your preservation of this book that testifies to that commitment and faithfulness and grace. And Lord, we ask that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear this day, which you would have us see. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, so uh, several years ago, uh, many of you, some of you may not know this, we used to meet at North Cross. And several years ago, I had the opportunity to teach a class I called the Festal Scrolls. And uh, some of you might remember that class. Uh, the Festal Scrolls class was uh, a class kind of a survey of five Old Testament books, the books of Ruth, Lamentation, Esther, Song of Psalms, and uh, which one did I miss? Ecclesiastes. And these five scrolls are linked together. And in that compilation, Ruth is known as the scroll of kindness. And <clears throat> it's not hard to imagine why as we've gone through this book. And um, it's also read annually at the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates the Lord's kind provision for his people. And one of the things that I wanted to bring out in that class is that the way the book of Ruth is structured, the way it's written, it lends itself to reading like, an act, uh, like a play in four acts. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it really does. It's like this four-act play. And so as we've gone through these first three chapters, we've really experienced three acts in this little play. And we've seen the setting change time and again. Uh, you remember in the first act, chapter one, uh, the scene was really the journey from Moab to Bethlehem. And then in act two, the scene was uh, largely taking place in the field of Boaz. And then in that super exciting chapter, last chapter, chapter three, 
uh, most of the action takes place at night at the threshing floor. Uh, and Andrew uh, walked us through that last week. But it's interesting that that third chapter, that third act, it introduces a plot twist. And I don't know if you caught that last week, but it really does introduce a twist because in verse 12 of chapter 3, Boaz says this, he says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Ruth had basically just asked Boaz to marry him. And the way I read it, Boaz's heart skipped a beat. Uh, He was super excited. And the tender affection between these uh, two people uh, has caused us at this point in the story to start rooting for them. We want Boaz and Ruth to get married. But he says there's another one who's closer than he is. And so not only is this kind of a plot twist, but it leaves us on a cliffhanger at the end of Act 3. You know, it reminds me of Toy Story 2, when when Woody has finally come to understand that he is, in fact, the hero of Woody's Roundup. And so he starts watching all of these episodes and seeing what great deeds that he and his trusty sidekick horse, Bullseye, had accomplished. And during the movie, he's watching this one episode, and as they're sprinting toward a cliff, he he and Bullseye jump the cliff, and they're in midair, and you're like, go, Woody and Bullseye. And then the episode cuts off. And Woody, who's watching this, is like, what happened? What happened? It's truly this cliffhanger ending. And I kind of feel like that has what has just happened. That's what's just happened to us as we've read this play in chapter three. What is going to happen? Is Ruth going to marry Boaz? Or is she going to marry this other guy, this closer redeemer? And on top of that, what's going to happen to Naomi? Is she going to find respite? Is she going to find relief? from the bitterness that she's been nurturing. We don't know. But unlike Toy Story, where the the series just ended, we do have this fourth chapter, praise the Lord. And uh, and we're filled with anticipation because at the end of chapter three, notice what Naomi says. She says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. We are filled with anticipation. How is this story going to turn out? And that brings us to this final act, chapter four. And here the scene has changed once again. And in these first several verses, this is, this is basically what happens. Boaz heads to the gate, and he heads to the gate because that's where business was conducted back then. He heads to the gate, and lo and behold, by pure chance, the near relative, this near redeemer comes walking by. And Boaz hails him. He says, hey, friend. Actually, he doesn't say friend. He actually, this is just an interpretive stab. What he actually says in Hebrew, he says this, hey, 
Poloni Almoni. No, just say that again. Say that with me. Poloni Almoni. Okay, that's better than the first, uh, that's the, the first service. All right. He says this Hebrew rhyming nonsense phrase, Poloni Almoni. And basically what it means is so-and-so or such-and-such. And in fact, the New Jewish uh, uh, Publication Society, their Bible, in their Bible, they actually translate this as Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> so that's the way I put it in my outline. And so Boaz, he sees him come by and he says, hey, Mr. So-and-so, come here, sit down, we need to talk. And then being a noble man, a man who uh, demanded respect or commanded respect, he was able to garner 10 elders of the city. He said, hey, guys, come here. Sit down, we have something to discuss. And this is what he says. He says, uh, Mr. So-and-so, our relative, Naomi, she needs to sell the land that she's inherited from her deceased husband, Elimelech. She has nothing to live on. Now, if there were a redeemer, then that man could buy this land and keep it in the family. And... On top of that, if there were no heir, then he could add that to his own property holdings. Mr. So-and-so, you are first in line. You've got dibs. What do you think? You want to do it? And Mr. So-and-so says, wait, you, I just have to take care of this elderly woman and then I get the land? Well, sure, I'll do it. And then Boaz says this, oh, by the way, when you buy this land, you also need to marry her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabite, so that you can raise up an heir in the name of her deceased husband, Mahlon, so that the land will not uh, leave their immediate family. And he's, he said, oh, <laughs> uh, you know, on second thought, on second thought, why don't you go ahead and buy it? I can't do it. You go ahead and buy it. Friends, what on earth is going on in this scene? What is going on? Well, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, there were a couple of laws that inform, at least loosely, what's going on in this scene. In Leviticus 25, 25, there was a law about, uh, about land redemption. And this is essentially what it said. It said, if someone were, uh, found themselves in dire straits and they needed to sell their property in order to uh, get money to make a living, then a near relative could buy that property back in their name in order to keep that property in their name and this was super important and the reason it was important was because the land allotments in israel they were supposed to be permanent you see the land allotment was a visible pledge of the lord's enduring faithfulness to his people you know he said that i will be your god and you will be my people, and your perpetual holding of this land is a pledge that we will dwell together forever. Super important. But what if 
There was no heir. In the case of Naomi, this is what's happening. Naomi needs to sell this field to get land to live on. Okay, but if there's no heir, ultimately the land will fall out of her line, of Elimelech's line, and it will be, it will be retained by the Redeemer. And so the name of her immediate family will be cut off from the promised land. And friends, this was a devastating, psychologically devastating thing to have happened. And so there was another law in the Old Testament that sought to mitigate against the possibility of not having an heir, and that was the Leveret Law. And you can find this in Deuteronomy 25, and lever just means brother-in-law. And in this law, essentially, when a man died, uh, the, his brother could marry uh, the widow in order to produce an heir in his name so that someone could inherit the property. You see how these are intimately entwined? It does Naomi ultimately no good to preserve, uh, uh, as she desires to preserve the name of her husband Elimelech with this land, if she doesn't have an heir. They are intimately linked. And you know, I think Naomi and Boaz know this. They understand how these are linked. And this is why we see Naomi get excited when she hears the report that uh, Ruth has gleaned in the field of their redeemer. She goes, oh. And then she hatches that plan where uh, Ruth is going to get spiffied up and meet Boaz in the middle of the night on the threshing floor. She's got marriage in mind. And she says, do exactly what he tells you to do. She, oh. And then, and then she says that he's going to, he's going to uh, see this matter solved this very day. And this is why Boaz structures this entire scene as he did. Land and then marriage. They go hand in hand. And this is what's going on. But there's a wrinkle. And the wrinkle is, is that the Redeemer, the one who would step up to do these things, this was voluntary. He could refuse it. And this is exactly what Mr. So-and-so does. He refuses it. Now, why do you think he does this? Well, part of the answer is given in verse 6. He says, it's going to jeopardize my inheritance. I can't do that. And yet, did you notice that he says that only after Boaz says, oh, by the way, you need to marry Ruth. Oh, and by the way, she's a Moabite. And I can't help but think that part of the reason Mr. So-and-so refused to step up as the Redeemer is as he's got in the back of his mind uh, the, the prohibition in Deuteronomy 23 of a Moabite even entering into the assembly of God's people. And so Mr. So-and-so, I think he's just thinking the bottom line. I think he's just thinking letter of the law, and he starts to count the cost. And he says, Boaz, you're not simply asking me to build the mother-in-law suite in my house. You're asking me 
to marry this woman of questionable reputation. And if there's a child, now I'm on the hook for, you know, guitar lessons. I'm on the hook for, you know, maybe private school and college. Boaz, the cost is too high. I can't do it. You play this role. You step up and be the redeemer. And friends, the contrast between Mr. So-and-so and Boaz is striking. Mr. So-and-so was unwilling to give of himself and his possessions for the sake of his needy relatives. He was only interested in the bottom line and protecting his good reputation. But Boaz refused to count the cost. And he acted selflessly in the name of the Lord and on behalf of his brethren. And in this way, Boaz embodied the Lord's hesed. And he understood and he acted in the true spirit of the law. And I think this is why, unlike Mr. So-and-so, Boaz was able to recognize that the prohibition against a Moabite coming into the assembly of the Lord did not apply to Ruth, a widow who had sought refuge under the shadow of the Lord's wings. It didn't apply to her any more than it would have applied to Rahab, the Canaanite, whom we know is numbered among the faithful. And you know, the irony of this whole scene is that this nearer redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, who refused to act to perpetuate the name of his relative Elimelech, he has been immortalized as Poloni Almoni, Mr. So-and-so. Friends, his name is forgotten. But Boaz's name has become famous. And in fact, in verse 11, we see the witnesses praying that his name would become famous and heralded throughout Bethlehem. And of course it was. But beyond that, Boaz's name has found its way into the royal genealogy of King David and even the messianic genealogy of our Savior, Jesus. And you know, this whole scene invites us to ask of ourselves, how do we view the things God brings down our paths? Do we see the situations in our lives as opportunities to glorify God by ministering to others? Or do we see the circumstances that he brings our way merely in terms of what's in it for me? Or more broadly speaking, as CTK, are we a community that warmly welcomes outsiders, people like Ruth? Are we willing to share our time and our energy and our assets with them in the service of the Lord? Or are we only good at welcoming those who seem to fit in, who speak the language or maybe have the right reputation. Friends, the book of Ruth, especially this scene where the kindness of Boaz is so beautifully depicted, it serves to remind us 
that we who have put our trust in the Lord, we are, as the Apostle Paul says, crucified with Christ. Friends, our lives are not our own. They belong to the Lord. And they are intended for us to be used in the service of Him and in the service of our neighbor. Well, as the act uh, moves on, the scene changes once again. And we're no longer at the gate, but now we're essentially in a household. And in these several verses that follow, uh, we see several things transpire. Boaz and Ruth, they get married. Uh, the Lord enables Ruth to conceive after 10 years of barrenness. The women that surround them celebrate the birth of this child. And in verse 16, there's this wonderful picture where Naomi is seen sitting, holding her newborn grandson, Obed. It's a beautiful scene. And, and the whole scene here really is a picture of the transformation that has happened in the life of Naomi. That she has moved from emptiness to fullness. And literally, her arms are full with her newborn grandson. And you know, this invites us to think back of how we were introduced to, the, to Naomi in the first act. Remember uh, how she was introduced. She was on her way from Moab to Bethlehem, and she was empty. She had lost her husband. She had lost her two sons. As far as we know, she had no means of subsistence. She didn't seem to count Ruth, who pledged uh, fealty to her, as a blessing. When she arrived in Bethlehem, she told them, Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And she even thought that the Lord was judging her. In fact, in verse 21 of chapter 1, she says, The Lord has brought calamity upon me. Friends, she was empty. And although we see a renewal of her faith in the Lord's provision, as she hears about Boaz's kindness to Ruth, Really, the full expression of the transformative work of God in her life that he had brought and was continuing to bring her from emptiness to fullness, it's really left to the women to give at the birth of, Boaz, at the birth of Obed. Listen to what they say in the first part of, chapter, of verse 14. The women say this, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. I love the way that they say this because I think there's something a little subtle about it. They could have simply said, blessed be the Lord who has given you a redeemer. But they flip it. They make it negative. And I think in doing so, they're providing Naomi with a gentle rebuke regarding her estimation of the Lord's work in her life. Earlier she had said, the Lord has brought calamity upon me. And here the women are saying, the Lord has not withheld a redeemer. It's, it's amazing. 
but not only that, they go on to say, they continue to say, he shall be to you a restorer of life. And I can't help but think uh, about Psalm 23. You know how Psalm 23 begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me to beside still waters and he restores my soul. I think they were urging her. Naomi, the Lord is the restorer of your soul. He has not forsaken you. He has been working on your behalf, even in the midst of your sufferings this whole time. Naomi, look at what you're holding in your arms right now. But you know, they didn't simply remind Naomi of the Lord's provision uh, or about Obed being a restorer and a redeemer to her. They also extolled the virtue of Ruth. Look at what they continue to say uh, in verse 15. They say about Ruth, uh, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Ruth is better to her than seven sons. You get the picture. She's holding her grandson right now. And they're saying, Ruth is better than this one. He's, she's better than the two that you left in Moab. Ruth, this Moabite, is better to you than really seven sons, which was like a depiction of the perfect family in Israel. It's astounding. And what's striking to me is that they go on, or they note that Ruth loves Naomi. Did you catch that? In this book, where we have seen subtle and not so subtle acts of love throughout, especially between Ruth and Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, only of Ruth does the narrator say that she acted in love. Isn't that interesting? And I think that's interesting to me in part because the twin foundations of the people of God in the Old Testament were love for God, wholehearted love for God in Deuteronomy 6, and selfless love for neighbor in Leviticus 19. And so I think the narrator is leading us to recognize that in these dark days of the judges, the Lord was using Ruth, a Gentile, a Moabite, to teach the Israelites what it actually meant to live faithfully as the pe people of God. It's astonishing praise. And it doesn't surprise me then that in some of the compilations of the Jewish Bible, Ruth, the book of Ruth, immediately follows the book of Proverbs. You see, because they're seeing Ruth as the embodiment of that worthy woman in Proverbs 31. But friends, there is a danger for us in hearing a sermon on the book of Ruth. You see, focusing on the nobility of these characters, particularly both uh, Ruth and Boaz, it can leave us with the impression that we're simply to go out and do better. 
We're supposed to leave and be like Boaz or be like Ruth. You know, it reminds me of Emily Dickinson's poem. If I could stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. Well, friends, these are inspiring words, but they're utter nonsense. It's utter nonsense. It's a fool's errand to think that we as sinners who are morbidly selfish could ever, ever overcome the vanity of our own existence by the things that we do, however noble. We can't do it. And, you know, it's the reality that we are prone to wander away from the Lord and, like Mr. So-and-so, seek our own interests. Uh, it's that reality uh, that, uh, it's that reality that makes me really love the end of this book, that it ends with a genealogy. You know, it may seem odd that it ends with a genealogy. It could have ended in verse 16, and that would have been a happy ending, don't you think? There's the picture of Naomi. She's gone from emptiness to fullness. Her, her arms are full. Done. But it doesn't. It goes on and it gives us this genealogy. But you see, this genealogy has a way of focusing our attention climactically on the Lord's kindness to us, especially his ultimate kindness in the gift of his son, Jesus. After all, in the first chapter, Matthew uses this genealogy from the, from the end of the book of Ruth to trace the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, I think it's significant. I think it's significant that in at the beginning of this genealogy and throughout, we see that this little redeemer, Naomi's grandson, he's named Obed, which, is, which means servant. Isn't that interesting? Obed means servant. And, you know, surely he ended up serving his family. He took care of Naomi. And yet his service most certainly would have been flawed. And as that genealogy moves on, it leads to David. And that reminds us of David as the servant of Israel, who served Israel as their great king. But, y'all, we know full well that David's service was flawed. David is not the end of this story. You know, as we, if we were to look through the history of the servants of the Lord, we would see that that history is utterly flawed. And it's no surprise then that we hear the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 prophesy, prophesying about a coming suffering servant who would give his life on behalf of the sheep, our Lord Jesus. And it reminds me of what he himself said in Mark 10, 45. He says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, I know that many of you are experiencing dark days, even now. Whether it's difficulties at work or at school, uh, difficulties with family, relational strife, 
Uh, perhaps it's just utter fatigue from COVID. Or perhaps it's stress because of the unrest in this political season. And maybe like Naomi, you are feeling the absence of the Lord and perhaps even his displeasure. Uh, friends, I encourage you to let this book remind you that the Lord's kindness has not failed you. Jesus offers himself to you even now as your Redeemer. Friends, will you accept his kindness? Will you come to him in your pain and brokenness and find shelter in the shadow of his wings? Let's pray. Almighty God, oh Father, we as frail, needy people, we humble ourselves before you and we thank you. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for your provision. We confess our failure to see your hand at work when times get hard. We ask that you will strengthen our faith. Remind us of your kindness, Lord. Help us to be uh, reminding one another of that as well. Grow us in your grace. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.